Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and again, we're going to be talking about the Kingdom of God, and we're going to be talking about the Kingdom of God in relationship to the kingdoms of the world, which are not necessarily the same thing. I mean, God created everything, but He also created man in His own image, which means that man can create things too. And some of the things that man creates are not a good idea. Because man has been eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil rather than the tree of life. And so, anyway, if you've been listening regularly, uh, you may have uh, some kind of understanding of what I have uh, just said. But uh, uh, even if you have been listening regularly, you may have missed uh, a great deal of what I just said. So... It because it depends on whether you're eating of the tree of life or eating of the tree of knowledge. Because what I am sending out over the airways is from, or by way of, let's put it this way, by way of the tree of knowledge. Because both trees are in the garden. Both trees are in the protected place. That's what garden means. It means a protected place. Because... You know, anybody who lives in the country know that you have to protect your garden <laughs> because <laughs> because uh, lots of things will come and eat of your garden and you will end up with nothing. And uh, so there's a lot of things out there that are out there for themselves and they don't really care about your garden or your safety or your survival. And so they will take from you if they can. And so you create a garden, a protected place where you will not be taken. And we sometimes refer to that protected place as the full armor of God. And uh, there's a lot to that full armor of God. You know, in the news we have uh, lots of things going on all the time. A particular person is going through lawsuits and all this kind of stuff. And if you go back over his life, he he's always looked for a relationship with somebody that is meaningful. Uh, but he can't seem to find it. He has lots of different relationships. He's got a lot of different uh, amounts of money in his life. Uh, but uh, his relationships uh, crash and burn on a regular basis. But he's an individual soul uh, seeking whatever he is seeking. And uh, we should all be seeking the truth because the truth will set us free. But the reality is we don't always want the truth. We want, you know, comfort. Um uh, we want our vanity wants all kinds of things promoting us, and uh, it can lead us down all kinds of roads that uh, are destructive uh, to ourselves, to our happiness, to our families, uh, to everything that we hold of value can be destroyed and taken away uh, in a twinkling of an eye. And so the only protection we really have against all these malevolent forces from the things that want to jump into our garden and eat all of our uh, our plants that are supposed to feed us through the winter or whatever, <laughs> feed us through the summer, um, you want that garden protected, but there's lots of things that will take it away from you. 
And one of the things that makes you extremely vulnerable to having things taken away from you is that if you think it's okay to take away from others. You know, I, I remember the story in a book I read years ago uh, by Andrew Garcia, Journey Through Paradise, I think was the name of the book. And he was a Hispanic who had worked for the U.S. military during the Nespers Indian Wars as a mule skinner uh, because an army moves on its belly and the mules are what moves the food to the army. <laughs> and so they needed lots of mule skinners. That's a guy who, you know, runs a team of mules. And uh, he made enough money to go out and start his own trapping business, which he thought would make him a fortune. And it did make him a lot of money. He eventually bought a apple orchard in the foot of Mount Shasta in California and lived into the 30s, maybe even into the 40s. But when he was a young man, uh, he he lived with the Indians. He uh, married an Esperse originally. She was eventually killed in an Indian raid. And that was the story I thought I'd bring up of the whole story and the whole book and his whole story of his life is that uh, he had an Indian wife that he, he loved dearly. She was quite an unusual person, to say the least. Uh, he calls her Inhulais, which means broken tooth. She has a broken tooth in the front of her mouth. Uh, that was broken by the butt of an army rifle during the uh, Battle of the Big Hole. And uh, but he tells this whole adventure. But the and not uh, the the injury that finally killed her was from an Indian war club, probably a Crow Indian, if I remember right. Uh, long time since I read the book, over half a century since I read the book. And of course, he wrote the book. Uh, more than a half a century before that, and he lived it more than a half a century before that. So it's it's actual. Uh, he's probably part of the character that uh, they created. The character of uh, Little Big Man is that if I got the name of that movie right with Dustin Hoffman. Uh, but uh, anyway, he was out. He, he he lived with the Indians. Started living like an Indian. <laughs> And they went to raid another Indian uh, encampment and uh, to do whatever they could get. And getting, it was kind of a revenge raid. And uh, when they were out there looking for the other Indian encampment, they came across the tracks of what was clearly a war party. And it looked like the war party was headed for their own encampment. And so uh, there was a variety of Indians with him. They weren't all one tribe. And uh, Inhulais was Nez Perce, uh, but he had had been with Pendereal and uh, other Indians as well. But they realized that their own uh, encampment was in danger, and so they hightailed it back, and they got there just as the raid was taking place. And Inhulais, during that raid, was... Uh, hit with a war axe, and uh, uh, I won't go into the gory details, but she didn't die right away, but they they fought them off, but then they were afraid of retaliation, so they were moving camp, and she ended up dying uh, near a rock slide in the uh, Rocky Mountains, and uh, that's where he buried her. But his life went on, lots of other adventures and everything, but 
the reality was, the point of my story is to show you that when you're running in one direction to what you think is your advantage, you may be creating a disadvantage in another direction because of things that are beyond your capacity to see, which is why you need to learn to eat of the tree of life. Because the tree of life is a direct connection to God. You know, in ancient folklore or ancient scriptures, they talk about the Acacia record and and uh, all these things. Uh, the divine consciousness, they got lots of different names for it. But uh, this creative force, this singularity, that's another term that's uh, come down to us through physics and quantum mechanics. Uh, that if you connect to that, it will give you a wider view of the reality around you. And it may not explain everything in great detail, but it will give you an insight into whether you should go this way or go that way or marry this person or marry that person or or take this drug or not take this drug. (laughs) I mean, it can tell you all kinds of things that are really outside of your range of understanding. And we see at least two places in the Bible where Jesus seems to count, he seems to see that there is a particular time to do something, to, to step in a particular direction, to to fulfill some sort of task in front of him. And people are pressuring him to do something counter to what this internal divine clock in him is telling him to do. And in one case, he does not do it. In the other case, he does do it. Uh, Even though he knows it's not yet time to do that or time to manifest that particular characteristic or or power or ability that Christ had but he did it anyway and you we could spend the next uh, 10 hours just just examining those two events which are both mentioned in John but uh the reason I bring it up now I'm not going to explain it right now we'll maybe do it later on in the show uh but the reason I bring it up is so that you understand that timing is almost everything. You know, if someone, I remember back when, I, you know, I'm playing baseball as a kid and somebody hits a high pop fly into uh, left field, which is often where they stuck me. <laughs> it's left field. <laughs> And uh, I didn't have that great a throwing arm when I was a little kid. I, I don't know that I have a great one now. It's a lot older arm now. But uh, it, uh, it it's amazing. And I thought about this later, the way my brain thinks, is the calculations that go on in your mind when that ball is hit. I mean, you hear, you, you, you see it hit before you even hear <laughs> the crack of the bat against the ball. You see the ball rising in the air and now I need to start running where that ball is going to come down. And you see professional ball players do this all the time. That, that, you know, they do these unbelievable, you know, catches 
where they're running all the way to the backboard and they leap up in the air and catch the ball. Their brain has done all kinds of trigonometry <laughs> and, and math to calculate where that little tiny glove has to be in that gigantic field in order to catch that ball. And they they may have even flunked math in school. You know, like Einstein actually flunked math in the early days in school. He had to go back and decide he had to learn math because nobody could understand what he was talking about unless he said it mathematically because math is a, a form of language. So anyway, the reality is all that math doesn't go on in your conscious mind, but all that math does go on. Uh, and somehow or other you calculate where that glove has to be, or, or hopefully you do, if you're a good ball player, and you end up being right where you need to be at the right time. This is the story of your life. Where to be at what time. What to do in this moment. Or not do in this moment, or the next moment, or tomorrow. I mean, you want to get certain things done, and you say, "Oh, I, I'm I'm going to go work on this. I have to work on this." But maybe deep down inside you, where the tree of life flourishes, there's a still small voice saying, "Nope, not time. <laughs> Don't do it." <laughs> so, and it, is it? The Holy Spirit, or is it not the Holy Spirit? Is it the tree of life that you're listening to, or is it your imagination? We're all a little schizophrenic at times, and uh, we don't always know what's guiding us, what's telling us to do what. And so finding out what it is that is the still small voice, it is what is the voice of God, what is the truth, is really our journey on this planet. It is what we should be doing in our life. It's not accumulation of wealth, accumulation of knowledge, accumulation of friends, accumulation of prestige. It's accumulation of the truth. And the amazing thing about the truth is you cannot accumulate it. It's not a genie in the bottle. The truth is only in the moment. Because... The world around us is changing all the time. And what is the world around us? What is uh, what we call the world? And uh, that that's what we'll probably go back to because in one of those places where Jesus is confronted with somebody pressuring him to do something that is not yet time, he mentions the world and that the world hateth them. And, but it doesn't hate these other guys who are pressuring him. But it hates him. But it hates him because he tells the truth about the world. And of course, now if you're reading that in your Bible, King James or NIV or whatever Bible you're reading it in, you're going to see that word world there. And as we've pointed out many times, there's at least four different words in the Greek text so that's in the New Testament alone, that are translated world. There's actually could be five. Uh, there actually even could be a little bit more than that. But there's at least four different words, whatever Bible you have, 
that are translated in world, and they are completely different words. And none of those four mean planet. It doesn't mean the planet you live on. That's not what it means. So what word did Jesus use when he talks about the world hating him? It's not the planet doesn't hate him. Uh, it's something else. And of course, those again who have been listening regularly know exactly what I'm talking about, or should, <laughs> if you've been paying attention while you're listening. And if you haven't been listening, we have all our shows in the past, going back years and years, that uh, are archived. And we've got a lot of notes with them to show, you know, what's the subject matter. Because I'm a big one for rabbit trails. Because I understand, you know, I've hunted rabbits on the desert. And rabbits run out in a circle and they come back to where they started. And it's a way in which they keep... uh a perspective on the lay of the land. And if you're going to venture into the realm of spirit and knowledge of the spirit instead of knowledge of flesh and blood, you need to orient yourself. And of course, that's what Christ was doing with his ministry. He was orienting us in the realm of spirit. He was teaching us how to navigate in the realm of spirit. And he was telling us things like we needed to forgive and we needed to be sacrificing, giving, get, laying down our life, our energy, our time for other people in a generous sort of way. And rich people find that very difficult because it isn't just giving, it's sacrificing. And a rich man can give huge amounts to try to satisfy this need to sacrifice in order to create the walls of his garden. That's because that's how you do it. That's one of the ways you do it. But because he's so wealthy, he's giving from his surplus. He's never giving from his want. And the poor person, when he gives, he can just give a little bit and he's giving from his want because he doesn't have a surplus. And that, in the spiritual realm, builds a stronger wall. It, it creates a different influence. And so, you know, this is one of the reasons why Christ told his disciples, who were his student ministers, disciples mean students. Everybody talks about discipleship and everything. And they think we're all disciples. Well, we are all students. But the, when they refer to the disciples, to the apostles, they're not talking about all the people that are following and trying to learn what Christ has to teach and everything. They're talking about the ones to whom he is going to appoint the kingdom. These are the ones that he's teaching to be the new ministers of his government. Because that's what the the church, even still today, is defined as one form of government. Now, when we say the word government, because almost every government out there that we look at are governments that exercise authority, we think the church has a a right to exercise authority one over the other. But Christ said his government was not like all those other governments that exercise authority one over the other. But they're doing something completely different. And you can actually divide all forms of government. There's all kinds of governments, communist governments, democratic governments, republics, 
uh, all kinds of different, you know, and of course all kinds of different republics. I mean, you got China is supposed to be a republic. The Soviet Union was supposed to be a republic. America is supposed to be a republic. They are certainly different. So a republic is, you know, it's kind of like capitalism. Capitalism is not political. It's just an economic system. And a republic, it's political, but the leaders, in a true republic, the leaders are titular. Uh, When the Constitution was written, it created an actual democracy within a republic. It still says that in, in the American creed, that the United States is a democracy within a republic. But the republic, the the leadership is titular. In the United States democracy, the leadership is not titular. It actually can exercise authority. But, of course, as we've explained, if you go back, and, and, and the Supreme Court explained, that the people were not a party to the Constitution. We the people at the beginning of the Constitution doesn't refer to the people of America. It it refers to the people of the United States, which was, you know, Congress and senators and employees of the United States. Which was separate from all the other states. And I'm I'm going into that because in the next half hour we're going to go into something that I I heard on the news. I heard of for years ago. I actually went back to an article I wrote way back uh in the last millennium, <laughs> 1998 actually, and uh, I reviewed that. And I'm going to tie all this together because we got about six or seven rabbit trails going on here. Uh, but the reality is, is this, and we're all going to come back to how do you know if you're listening to the Holy Spirit, <laughs> or if you're listening, you know, if you're eating of the tree of life, or if you're eating of the tree of knowledge. Because if you're eating of the tree of knowledge, death awaits you. Destruction awaits you. Catastrophe awaits you. Now, to some degree, catastrophe is coming no matter what you do. But if you're listening to the Holy Spirit, you may be able to navigate around some of the detrimental effects of catastrophe. And you may be walking in the garden with God, which would be walking in a protected place. But of course, if if you're only interested in saving yourself and protecting yourself, and that's why you want to know, you know, get an edge on the destruction that may be coming in the world. There's always destruction coming somewhere in the world because that's the that's the nature of the world. I mean. The, We've had catastrophe after catastrophe. We have life. We have death. We have this cycle. We have all kinds of cycles. We're in another solar cycle where the poles of the entire sun have reversed. And now we're in this other cycle. As a matter of fact, just minutes before we started this show, the Earth was starting to be hit by radiation from the sun from part of one of the events on the sun. It wasn't a major event. Uh, but we're moving into a more active state in the sun. And, and of course, Jesus said that we were to look for signs in the sun. What is a preacher wearing sandals in the deserts of Judea telling people to look for signs in the sun? <laughs> well, we've touched on that before, too. But anyway, we're going to get deeper and deeper into this if you want 
to take that ride, then come back after a brief break. Well, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. Last week we talked about uh, church and state. And uh, this is actually part of that series on church and state. Uh, because I've added, we have, you know, we have preparingyou.com and I put a lot of the articles up there. The article I was, uh, reading this morning or was led to read this morning was an article, like I said, that I wrote back in 1998. And, uh, it was the result, uh, in, in that article and I, I haven't put a lot of the articles that I used to write back then. A lot of them were actually lost because we had a website that eventually, I didn't get everything transferred over <laughs> when we started our new sites of hisholychurch.org. And uh, uh, it just kind of fell on the wayside. Because we used to put out a, a newsletter that we actually mailed out at our expense and and uh, went all over. Actually, I, I got calls from back when there was a Soviet Union um from people who were reading our pamphlets back there. And I thought, like, how did our pamphlets get there? <laughs> and, uh, but, uh, uh, the reality is, is that, you know, we cast our seeds and the wind takes them. And, uh, and so, uh, the news has been getting around. But I actually was reading it and some of my views are different. I mean, the basic theme of that article is the same as what the theme is today, but my understanding of what uh, some of the things that are mentioned in the article have, have different. It's actually an article farther down that I'm actually talking about some of the events on the sun, uh, which is why I mentioned it in the first part of the show again, or partly why I mentioned it. Uh, at least it's connected. But uh, the re- reality is, is that... Uh, you know, my understanding of the sun is is very much the same as it was back then. And of course, my understanding of the sun started when I was about five years old, and uh, had my first Kodak moment looking through a telescope that was looking at the sun traveling through the the skies during a solar max period, where you could actually see the sunspots crossing the face of the sun. And I knew that's important, that's significant. Uh, I, I was only five. Uh, but yet, uh, circumstances that uh, allowed me to be in a place where I could actually see that. And, uh, but that's in the physical realm, and everything in the physical realm has a corresponding spiritual existence. So, a lot of times you'll see things in the physical realm, and it's telling you something about the spiritual realm, and the spiritual realm rules. The spirit giveth life. The physical realm does not give life, but it is often in the physical realm in which we experience life. And so when you look at, you know, like some of these movie stars that are having such hard times with personal relationships, it's because they're trapped in a physical realm. They're focused in a physical realm. Their life uh, is in... And comes from that physical realm. Great wealth and great vanity. All these things cloud us away from the spiritual realm so that we cannot see it. So what gives us vision in the spiritual realm is is not praise. Uh, it is not wealth. Uh, 
It is not things that uh, beg attention from our vanity, uh, but it's humility. And humility comes when we lay down our life for others. You know, uh, one of the things that I've, I've seen in some movie stars are just who are just swallowed up by Hollywood is that suddenly they have children and they're very focused on their children because they they the contrast of the sacrifice necessary for raising children is huge compared to what you get from the prestige and vanity that Hollywood dangles out there. Politics is very much the same way. You know, politics is almost a form of the same kind of society of um, that we see in Hollywood and because politics is, is, again, about vanity, about praise, about people putting you up on a pedestal. And, and you can go over to the church. I mean, the churches come with a pedestal. They call it a, a pulpit or a podium, but they, they put their ministers up on a pedestal. In any church, in any gathering of people, whether politics or Hollywood, if somebody's trying to put you up on a pedestal, they are probably the Brutus who will stab you in the back. <laughs> you should not be putting people up on a pedestal. That is a disservice. But it plays to the vanity of people. and it's But it's destructive to eating of the tree of life. It is destructive of walking in the garden. You know, it is because that's pride is taking you away from the perception of the spiritual reality that giveth life. And so anybody who appeals to your vanity, appeals to your pride, appeals to, you know, um, the prestige of a position because God is no respecter of persons. I, I worked on our page concerning persons. Um, I've I, I just put through the, all the places where God says he is not a respecter of persons. <laughs> but if in Hollywood, your persona is what, you know, what, what they hold up. And it is one of the great seductions. So to see things spiritually takes a, a great deal of humility. And that humility is realizing that you can't figure this out. That you cannot put the Holy Spirit of God in a bottle like a genie and then now you have it. That That's one of the big things that a lot of people, you know, you're born again. Everybody wants, I'm born again. When were you born again? You know, I was born again on this day and all this stuff. And all you have to do, and we have an article up, you can go read it. Uh, you can find it. Uh, we have the whole Bible on on, on the internet, but uh, we also have links to an article, Born Again. And all you have to do is read a little bit farther in John, where it talks about being born again, and you'll realize that most of the people who think they're born again can't be born again by the description in the biblical text. But they don't want to see it, uh, and, and they're blind to it. Uh, the same as, you know, Adam and Eve hid when God came into the garden after they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, where they thought they could decide between right and wrong by their own knowledge, which is a vain thing to think. And, of course, 
that opened their eyes to the fact that they didn't have the authority to make those decisions. They didn't have the capacity to make the decision as to what is good and evil using their own intellect. They weren't that smart. And when they realized they didn't have that authority and they were naked, rather than admit it, they hid from it. This is the story of every man today, which is why most people who go to churches, I, I probably shouldn't say most, but we'll say many who go to church, because Jesus used the term many, who think that they're following him are actually workers of iniquity, which is what we're going to see when we read John 7, when it talks about the world and that people don't see the truth. They, they can't perceive it because of the fact that they're not, they're, because they're vain, because they think they have figured it out, because they think they are saved. But if you are still doing evil, which they talk about in John 7, then you're not born again. That's what it says. If you're still doing that evil, you're not born again. And so, what's evil? Well, covetousness is evil. You know, desiring benefits for yourself at someone else's expense by asking men who exercise authority to take away from your neighbor so that you can have free stuff. Security, safety, free education, social security, whatever it is, then you are not born again because you're still doing evil. You're still doing wickedness. You're still coveting your neighbor's goods through men who exercise authority, through a government that exercises authority one over the other, which Christ said his followers we're not to be like. Now that's, that is just clear statement of Jesus Christ. But boy, when you bring it up, people hate you. <laughs> of course, that's what Jesus is talking about. That they hate him. That, that he later talks to his apostles. That they, cause they hated me, they will also hate you. Cause this is, you know, what he is telling us. Now, openly, for there is no man that doeth anything in secret, and he himself seeketh to be known openly. If thou do these things, show thyself to the world. For neither did his brethren believe in him. And Jesus said unto them, My time is not yet come, but your time is always ready. And uh, his time what? what? What did he talk about? Well, then we get into verse 7. The world cannot hate you, but me it hateth, because I testify of it that the works thereof are evil. It is evil to covet your neighbor's goods through the exercising authority of the world. And the word world there is constitutional order or system of government. That is the way it is defined. And I tell people that. And they don't like me. But that's, I, I, that is part of my mission in life to tell people that. It, because it is the mission of the church 
do point out the truth and tell people that. So both in verse 4 and verse 7 of John 7, they, they talk about this world, this constitutional order or system of government that is doing evil. And it is the mission of the church to point this out to people so that they can repent, think differently. And the benefits that they look to in the world or look for in the world, in the constitutional orders and systems of government that they create for themselves, that they're not to look to that for those benefits. They're look, they should be looking to the government of God which we call the church. But there's other people out there have organizations or systems or institutions that they create. They also call that the church. So how do you know which is the real church? Which are the real ministers of Christ? And which are the ministers that tickle your ears so that you don't actually listen for Christ? They substitute emotionalism for the Holy Spirit. And people think that, oh, I I felt the Spirit. No, you felt emotionalism. And you felt an emotional adrenaline because they conjured up a feeling. And uh, and love is not a feeling. It's not a fancy. It's it's not either. Uh, But that's another story. We'll get into that. We might do that in the afternoon show, but... So back to what we were talking about last week, which is church and state. We went through Jefferson's letter where he talks about the separation of church and state. And we mentioned Prager Hughes talking about there's not supposed to be an entire separation of church and state. I actually saw a little bit of a video from Prager U, actually from Prager himself, where he starts to talk about the fact that we used to provide a lot of the benefits uh, that we now get from government. We used to provide that for one another. And, of course, that is what the Bible is telling us. That is what religion was. And we pointed that out in the show. We got into it at least a little bit. That religion is how you take care of the needy of your society. You know, the people do fall on need. They fall on hard times. And just like I said, if you desire benefits at the expense of your neighbor, by taking away from your neighbor then everything you have can be taken away from you because as you judge, so shall you be judged. Well, the reverse of that is true. That if you're willing to lay down your life for your fellow man in a righteous way, because we're supposed to be seeking the kingdom of God and the righteousness of God, then you, even if they take your life, you may pick up your life more abundantly. And when Jesus is talking in... in this, what they call chapter 7 of John, and talking about, you know, the world hating him because he tells how wicked the world is. Uh, he had preceded that re- with reference to Judas Iscariot, where he talks about, he says, right to his apostles, Jesus answered them, uh, Have not I chosen you, twelve, and one of you is a devil. <laughs> he says this. Well, at least that's the way they wrote it down, that that's what he said. And, and then it, it tells you in the text that he spoke of Judas Iscariot. And uh, who would eventually betray him. 
And, you know, it's like, well, Jesus knew he was going to betray him. Well, what the heck? Why did he pick him? Because the Spirit told him to. Allowed it. You know, he, he, you know, when they do the movie, they, you know, he's telling all these different apostles, come follow me. And he probably told lots of people to come follow him. But the twelve were the ones who stayed. And Judas Iscariot stayed until the end and then went and betrayed Christ. But, uh, the reality is, is that, well, in the movie, you know, he says, you know, come follow me and, and they all are supposedly making that choice. But when, uh, he talked to Judas Iscariot, he said, stay with us. He didn't say, follow me. Uh, so he allowed the traitor to be in his midst. Because he's not led by the things that we think should lead us. He's not led by his intellect. He's led by, because he knew he would betray him, but he was led by the Spirit. And and you see in the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus knows he's about to face this trial and ordeal, that he he doesn't really want to do it. And he's saying, if I could get out of this, if this cup could pass before me, I'm all for that. But eventually, it was thy will be done. He followed the will of the Father. And the thing is, today, we don't know what the will of the Father is most of the time because we go to preachers who say it's okay to covet your neighbor's goods through the men who exercise authority one over the other. But you can be saved by thinking a thought. You know, by imagining that you're born again or imagining that you believe in Jesus. You don't have to do what he says. Even though he said the absolute reverse. He said, not those who say, Lord, Lord, but those who do it the will of the Father. That is where Christ over and over again put his emphasis. And it is not the will of the Father, very clearly, from the beginning of the Bible to the end, that we should not be coveting our neighbor's goods through men who exercise authority. We did that through Nimrod. We did that through Pharaoh. We did that through Caesar. But we that is not what we do if we're actually following Christ. We're not even to eat of the table of Christ. That we're, we're to be doing this other thing. You know, like if you go to 1 Corinthians 8.1. Now as to touching things offered to idols. This is why, you know, we did a show on idolatry. You can go look up the article. Idolatry, covetousness is idolatry. Things offered to idols. When he's saying that, he's talking about the temples of Rome, which were government buildings providing free bread for the people and benefits for the people. When there was famines, thirst, we have an article on thirst and audios up on that. These, these, uh, you know, like the 2008 financial crisis or 1934 and uh, the Depression. These are dearths in the land. And you could go to Rome and Rome would give you welfare and free bread and and all kinds of provisions so that you could make it through the dearth, through the, the, the Depression. But we see right away in Acts, that's not what the Christians were doing. They weren't eating things offered to those government idols, those government institutions. They had an institution created by Christ in 
edified by the apostles and by all the Christians who sat down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands and started practicing pure religion by taking care of one another through charity. The world did it through what we call legal charity, or at least Alexis Tocqueville called it legal charity, which is, you know, the government forces the offerings of the people or borrows against the future and provides you with benefits. That's totally contrary to Christ. That's those things offered to idol. And so, this this idea of, you know, 1 Corinthians 8, 1, where it talks about these things, touching things offered to idols, um, is is taking the benefits from those men who exercise authority. I had a conversation with somebody who has a special needs child, whatever that means, and she's complaining about the school system, that her child is getting bullied and, you know, like the same as people complain about, you know, masks and mandates and and uh, forced injections. That was an article just before the program began. You know, a news story about uh, teachers not wanting to get the vaccination and bringing phony vaccination cards in and getting into trouble. Because they don't want to get the vaccination, but they want to keep their job. And, you know, that's in some states. Other states are more liberal, but which is one of the things that I cover in that article uh, that I wrote years and years ago was a particular, uh, uh, it was a, a executive order signed, uh, originally signed May 14th, 1998, and it was Executive Order 13083. And uh, it was signed by Clinton. And then during the process, he actually suspended it because once he makes that executive order, there's a period of time in which a Congress can challenge it and cause it to be null and void. And But if you suspend it, then that clock, that 30-day clock stops ticking. And he suspended it because there were people that were up in arms. In the in the deal, he he actually proclaims that the federal government is the supreme moral authority, <laughs> moral power, in uh, the United States. And uh, very cleverly, he puts it in there. And uh, so I wrote an article about that because I mean, like, whoa, Bill Clinton. Uh, the head of the federal government is now the supreme moral authority in America. <laughs> or in the United States. That, that would be correct, more correct terminology. But we won't go into that in detail. But most people are completely unaware. Why did he stop the clock? Why did he start it up again? Is it law in America today? Uh, what the heck? And where this is going to take us is to this subject which I have added to our page on church and state where we talk about nullification because there's a number of people, ex-military, congressmen, senators, who are talking about the power of nullification. And when they're talking about that, they're talking about the power of the state to nullify acts of the federal government, such as, you know, force mandates. Uh, All this stuff is a distraction, and it doesn't really mean anything. Uh... For your salvation. 
there is only one salvation, as that is that you actually become a doer of the word and a follower of Christ, a real follower of Christ, not just in with your lips only. And that's why I point out that if you say you're born again, but you're still doing contrary to what Christ said, why do you say call him Lord, Lord, and not do what he says? He even asked that question. And John. So, the reality is, is that probably most, if not many, of the people who think they are Christians are actually workers of iniquity. And Christ is going to say, get ye from me. Because many of the institutions that are calling themselves the church are not the church established by the Christ, but the church established by Constantine. Or the daughters of the church established by Constantine. Now, it doesn't matter what church you think you belong to. I mean, we don't want you to belong to the church. We want you to belong to Christ. Which is why I'm talking about the Holy Spirit. And finding out what the Holy Spirit wants you particularly to do. And and that's what Christ was talking about. So how do we get back to that point? And that's what we're going to talk about. More so in the afternoon as we explore nullification. And we'll be right back to Keys of the Kingdom. So welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. So a brief summary of where we went uh, in the last couple of shows is uh, this church and state uh, that uh, Jefferson talks about in a single letter to a Baptist group, an association association of Baptists, uh, was was talking about institutions of church and state has really nothing to do uh, directly with the uh, uh, clause where it talks about where the government can't establish religion because church is not synonymous with the term religion. Religiere, or in the Greek... uh, uh, Suddenly, I forgot the actual pronunciation of the Greek. <laughs> you can look it up yourself, what the Greek word for religion. But it actually means what you do. In the Greek, the word that they translate into religion actually means what you do. And it's very clear that pure religion was what you do to take care of the needy of your society, such as widows and orphans, whose families have broken down and they need help. And how you take care of them is pure religion if it's unspotted from the world, which we mentioned earlier is the same word, constitutional orders and systems of government, that you're supposed to be taking care of the needy of your society unspotted by the constitutional orders and systems of government because most systems of government exercise authority one over the other and force the contributions of the people or borrow against the future of your children in order to provide those benefits to the needy of your society. If you're doing it that way, that's not pure religion. That's actually works of iniquity because it's based on covetousness and forcing the sacrifice of the people, which if you we have articles on uh, King Saul, that King Saul forced the contributions of the people. This is what he did wrong. I mean, it wasn't good that he threw a spear at David and all that, but what he really did wrong 
was, he, the foolish thing that was going to cause his kingdom to collapse and ended up leading him to falling on his own sword, having to kill himself, was the fact that he forced an offering of the people. He forced them to contribute to a good cause. Because once you do that, everything that you have could be forfeited as well. Cause and effect universe. So anyway, back to the church and state. So when, what, what the uh, clause says actually in the constitution is that the government can do nothing to establish religion, but the creation of social security and the whole social security welfare system is an establishment of religion because now that's how you take care of the needy of your society through men who exercise authority one over the other. So FDR was your pharaoh. FDR was your Nimrod. It wasn't that you weren't doing things wrong before that, but it was really a huge turning point where you began to go down the broad way towards destruction. And so now you're trying to figure out, well, who can we elect as presidents to fix things? Well, you have to end social welfare in your society. And if you elect somebody who does that through executive order or whatever then you're just exercising authority one over the other because people have a right to choose that way if they want to go that way. It's it's a bad idea. It it, it will incur what we call sin, this, this moving away from righteousness. It will darken your eyes. You will have to love darkness in order to do that and still think you're doing good, which most people are perfectly fine with. But it's, you can't become a tyrant to get rid of tyrants. So the solution is what Christ said, was that you have to come together, sit down with one another and set the table of the Lord and start loving your neighbor as yourself and start taking care of one another with love, which is the same word for charity. And you have to do this in earnest. And then the Holy Spirit will open your eyes to the next thing that you need to do. And hopefully... You'll begin to walk in the garden of God's righteousness and you will find his protection there. But you're not doing it because you're seeking to survive. You're doing it because you're seeking the righteousness of God. Seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness, not seek the kingdom of God and survival. You're willing to lay down your life for righteousness and, uh, you know, for the will of God. So anyway, separation of church and state really should be the separation of the religion of Christ and the religion of the state. And like I went into the second part of that article talking about separation of church and state, I used the small letter S state, which is when you're in the state of freedom, You're the small letter S state. Every one of you. It's the ultimate division of power. In the U.S. Constitution, you had a division of power where you had an executive branch and a judicial branch and and a legislative branch. But in the kingdom of God, you have the individual and the individual family. The only corporation... Uh, that was originally designed to be in the kingdom of God was the corporation of the family. Where two or more people are gathered together in one name, uh, in one person, in one entity, we call the family. 
that's that's a corporation. So the family is a form of corporation. Uh, it's not meant to be a statutory corporation. It's supposed to be a natural corporation because you naturally have to come together to in order to you know cohabitate and and procreate the next generation. And of course now that's all getting subverted in the present state because they are moving away from the righteousness of God and so therefore they, they will cloud this whole idea of gender and etc. etc. But the church is another corporation allowed by God. It's the government of God. What should be called the church, the called out, should be the government of God. It does not exercise authority over you. It it operates according to the perfect law of liberty where you will learn to take care of one another and your individual fate remains individually with you. It's not an unincorporated association. It's not a corporation that you join necessarily uh this corporation and now you're subject this is one of the amazing things like I said in that program I didn't explain it all it take quite a while to explain it all and it really isn't something I should tell everybody but Christ was the greatest legal mind of all times and he was showing you how because there are courts in heaven he was showing you how to organize yourselves according to the righteousness of God and, and according to that righteousness, you're not going to take away the right to choose that was granted to us by God originally. We're not, no institution of God takes away your right to choose on an individual basis. Because it's based on the perfect law of liberty. But if you choose wrongly, the consequences will kick in. So, in the kingdom of God, which is really the purest form of a republic, you can imagine, because the leaders are not rulers. They are titular. They're in name only. And the leaders when in the church in the wilderness were the Levites. But they weren't passing legislation. They weren't forcing the contributions of the people. The first time we see that is the forcing of the contributions, like I said, by King Saul which led to the destruction of Saul and and literally the destruction of the kingdom eventually. This idea of forcing the contributions of the people, which all your modern churches say, well, that's okay. You know, that's government. But Christ appointed a government that did not force the contributions of the people. So, that's that's important. So now that he also talks about be separate when he's talking to the apostles to be separate. They, there was a way in which they do that. And I won't go into all the details we do in the book, The Free Church Report, uh, if you read the footnotes at least. But what happens is that you are now coming out of them, my people, when you start sitting down and taking care of one another through charity rather than through legal charity of the state. And that starts to separate you in spirit and in truth. Now, notice I say in spirit first and then in truth. Everybody wants to fill out some sort of paperwork and separate themselves. Well, you haven't separated yourself in spirit. You only separate yourself in spirit when you start doing the reverse of what got you into trouble to begin with. You stop coveting your neighbor's goods. You start living by faith. 
You start living by charity, which is love, by starting to take care of one another through faith, hope, and charity. If you don't do that, there will be no separation. And why do I mention separation? And the, the next part of that is the death of the state. Well, it's the death of the need of the state. We don't have a right to kill Saul. David didn't kill Saul. He, he snuck up on him and left his dagger there and said, I could have killed you, but I'm not going to do it. Well, that's, that act saved Saul. We are not insurrectionists. We, we do not insurrect against Pharaoh. We do not insurrect against Caesar. We give to Caesar what is Caesar. But we seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. This separates us spiritually. Not like the people who imagine that they're born again. And still are committing iniquity. We stop moving towards the ways of iniquity and start moving towards the ways of righteousness. We can't do that without the the Holy Spirit. Because we don't know where to walk in the garden. We don't even know where the garden is. We don't build the walls of the garden. God builds those walls by our conformity to God. But what that death of the state brings about, it's not the death. We don't kill this. It's just dead to us. And this is one of the things where you see a lot of death and destruction, supposedly in the biblical text. A lot of that death is just, you know, stoning at the gate or stoning at a wall. It wasn't throwing rocks. They're dead to us. We're not going to go down that road. We're going to go the way of righteousness. And that's a process, which is why Christ used words like seek, persevere, strive. Because it's a process. We don't have total control over the process. We follow the way. I have an article on the way of Christ. Which is this way of charity and love and caring and sacrifice and humility. And it begins to alter us spiritually. As the Holy Spirit enter into us and change us. But we have to start doing things according to his timing. According to his way. According to his righteousness, which is revealed to us in the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, that he sends to us, that we should be eating of. That is our tree of life. And that brings about nullification, which is what I was going to talk to you about to begin with. So here we are at nullification, which is the there is a doctrine of nullification from the state's point of view is where, you know, uh, Kentucky and Virginia resolutions were passed back, way back in 1799, which said or suggested that the states had the power to nullify this acts of the federal government if they were contrary to the powers granted them by the Constitution. Now, that just opened up a huge can of worms. Because most of the people think the usurpation, and, and to some degree I was still thinking that. That was what I was originally taught back there in, in uh, you know, in 1960s and 70s and 80s. And so in 1998 I wrote that article about that, that uh, executive order of Bill Clinton. Talking about the supreme power, and I, I, you know, I quote Star Wars and everything in the article 
because uh, it's actually I have the whole newsletter up there, uh, which includes the dark side and the emperor's past and present and future and new lamps for old and hot comets and uh, and uh, a prediction that where I was beginning to see what it was like to see, you know, we're supposed to have this point in our lives as we begin to go through our personal Pentecost where we dream dreams and see visions. And so I talk a little bit about that. I'm not going to tell you exactly where it is, but you can look for it. But uh, uh, it's as it was written. I've added a few footnotes over the years so that you can find these Executive orders and and some somewhere I get I put in partial quotes but then in the footnote I put in the whole quote but I I put in a link to the whole executive order but it, this is a part of my journey to see how important the spiritual journey is towards the kingdom because if you don't follow that spiritual journey and turn what you are thinking in your head into physical actions. Because you have to become this doer of the word. That was a discussion that some people had. That, that What does it mean to be in the word? And people were saying, well, you read the Bible. And then you're in the word. You, you read the Bible. And you read the Holy Scriptures. And this was the kind of answers you were getting. Well, the devil reads the Bible. <laughs> Reading the Bible doesn't put you in the word. And even the Bible tells you that. It doesn't put you in the word. It's when you become a doer of the word. And now, again, you can't become a doer of the word until you allow God to write upon your heart and your mind. Because you won't even understand the word. Because, well, they've, they've fiddled fast and loose with translations. I mean, the word they translate into world that means constitutional order and system of government can be translated into world. But it does create confusion if you take three or four other words and you translate them into world too and you don't tell them which one is which. Then you'll think that when they're talking about not being of the world is the same as when they say the end of the world. Because those are two completely different words. That there is no talk about the end of the world in that sense. And being a part of the world is not being a part of the planet. It's not even a part of being flesh and blood. You are meant to be flesh and blood. But you are meant to be led by the Holy Spirit. Your flesh and blood follows the Holy Spirit. When you follow your flesh and blood, then you're going to imagine that your emotion is the same as the Holy Spirit. But that's a delusion. Because the Holy Spirit is actually spiritual. And it's the Spirit that giveth life. So you have to do the Spirit thing first. And that's a process. So when I talk about this church and state and nullification and all this kind of stuff, I mention the doctrine of nullification because that is a dark road that a lot of people are going down these, you know, uh, ex-military officers and politicians and and I've seen a number of people bring it up, as well as this idea of, you know, your personal autonomy. You fill out the paperwork and then you're separate. Uh, if you're not separating in the spirit, you're not separating, uh, you know, with paperwork or claims of sovereignty are just going to get you into more and more trouble. 
it's not going to bring you to your Pentecost, which is everybody who got the baptism of Jesus Christ were out of the system of the Pharisees and Herod. We explained the system of that at the time, that the, why the religion of the Pharisees was making the word of God to none effect. Why and how Herod played a part in that, which was Herod was the head of the civil government and the Pharisees at that time were often the head of the religious part of government, which is the left and right hand. And they had mixed. And this is why Jesus is saying, you know, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. You're not supposed to mix those. That's part of that separation. But the, the power of those two hands should be in the hands of the individual. Because you were never to have a king to begin with. And if you were going to have a king, you should write an ironclad constitution with five points in it to limit the power of that king or president or prime minister or legislature. And like I've pointed out, we have articles that go through this step by step that those five points that you were to put into your written constitution if you want to have a chief executive officer, only one of the five are in the constitution. Which is why it's not a biblical document. But anyway, I go into this, this section on our church and state article about nullification. Uh, the, originally the states back in 1990, or 1799 were, uh, were as foreign to each other as Mexico is to Canada. Uh, this was even after the ratification of the Constitution. And the people were not a party to the Constitution, so they were not we the people. Now, that's not the case anymore because 1799 has come and gone and 1899 has come and gone and 1999 has come and gone. And now you're in a different state, a different world, a different realm. You're actually back in the bondage of Egypt. All of you and all your children are surety to debt to the trillions and trillions of dollars. And the Great Reset is now taking advantage of that. And it isn't that you're going to own nothing and be happy, but you already own nothing and you think you're happy because you don't understand that you you have abandoned the principles of the republic and entered into a system of legal charity through a democracy and an indirect democracy at that that is in debt to foreign powers. And you, the whole world has gone back into the bondage of Egypt and the way back is the way of Christ which... You have to create those social bonds. We have an article explaining what that means. You have to no longer be dependent upon legal charity, but the righteous charity of Christ. You have to start learning how to attend to the weightier matters. I don't think you can do that properly unless you sit down in the tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands in a network of charity where those social bonds are created. And we have a number of articles there that will explain how that works. And But the reality is that we have forgotten the art of liberty. We've forgotten the art of freedom. We've forgotten what it means to live by the perfect law of liberty. Because we are absolutely been willing over the last 50 to 100 to 150 years in one way or another of taking away the right of our neighbors to choose by giving power to government to force the contributions of our children, uh, of our neighbor to provide us with public schools that's antichrist to provide us with 
you know, social security. That's antichrist. That is the Corbin of the Pharisees that makes the word of God to none effect. So you have your work cut out for you where you need to turn around and start going another way. You don't have any ministers hardly. Although I have heard just recently, like I say, I heard Prager you talking about it a little bit. They still haven't put it together in context. I, and I don't know if they have the wherewithal to do that. Because they're going to have to see that a lot of the things that they already thought about modern Judaism or modern Christianity is false. It, because they've all gone this other way. But philosophers, and that's why I end up quoting not only from the Bible... But I show you that wise men of the ages, from Polybius to Plutarch, although Plutarch wasn't that wise, <laughs> he did he did see some of the problem, but there are other things he didn't see. His solutions were horrible. They're more in line with Hamilton, uh, who is not my favorite early American. <laughs> but, you know, uh, I, I leave forgiveness uh, and judgment to God. And... Uh, but the reality is, a lot of people, even Alexis Tocqueville, a Frenchman who came over here and looked at America, was saying things like, America is great because she is good. If America ceases to be good, America will cease to be great. Now, I say, he said things like that, because he didn't actually say that. That's a quote that is often attributed to him, that just is not, wasn't what he said. Somebody wrote it down. As if that was a quote from him, and it wasn't for years and years before somebody finally looked it up and said, you know, he didn't actually write that. Because <laughs> somebody got it wrong. It was actually way back in, in a book in 1941, uh, written by Sherwin Eddy. Uh, it's actually, the book is called The Kingdom of God and the American Dream. And he quotes, supposedly, Alexis Tocqueville, and I don't know where he got the quote. I mean, he, he was, he wasn't, he probably had it in his notes and thought it was a quote from there, but anyway, it wasn't a direct quote. But Dwight D. Eisenhower quoted, uh, Sherwin Eddy, or at least what he wrote back in 1941. Um, and he was quoted in 1952, which is like 11 years later. He's quoting it in a campaign address or something, um, in Boston. Uh, but other guys quoted it, uh, uh, in their books. Uh, Ralph Woods quoted it in his book, The Third, uh, Treasury of the Familiar. And, uh, Reagan quoted it, Clinton quoted it. We talked about Clinton at the beginning of the show in his executive order. Uh, so he's quoting it. And so, you know, I mean, Snopes makes a big deal out of the fact that it's not actually in the book of Alexis Tocqueville. But the reality is it's true that America was, its greatness was the result of the fact that it was 90%, maybe more, 99% of all the welfare in America for over a century was through charity. True charity, through churches, through philanthropic organizations, etc. The reverse is true today. 90% or more of the welfare provided in your local churches 
is provided through governments that exercise authority, that take away or borrow against the future. Even the Sabbath keepers are all borrowing money against the future to take care of their elderly and their parents and everything else. This is contrary to Christ. And it blinds us to the spiritual awakening of Christ in our hearts and our minds. We'll be right back. So welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. So I I was quoting from, you know, uh, John 7, uh, 1, 1, and... uh, like I said, the other other place, uh, I don't know if I mentioned it, but it was when Jesus was at this wedding in Canaan and uh, they ran out of wine and Mary, his mother, came to him and said uh, they're out of wine. And he said, you know, my time has not yet come. And she didn't argue with him, but she said, do what he tells you. And he told him to go get these vases and fill them with water and they turned into wine. And, uh, but he said his time had not yet come to manifest these miracles that he was capable of doing, but she wanted him to do it anyway, and he obeyed his mother, which is really what the story is all about. It's not about the wine. <laughs> it's about the, uh, it, about the family. Uh, but then later on, uh, his family is trying to talk him into not going to Jerusalem, because they know that he would be in danger in Jerusalem. They know that uh, John the Baptist was in danger if he went to Jerusalem. Uh, but uh, he said, you know, and they said, your brethren are at the door. And he said, he who does the will of my father is my mother and my brothers. And so that was kind of chastising them that, you know, this ain't, we're not in Canaan anymore. <laughs> uh, I have to do what I have to do. I have to I have to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit. In order for you to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit, you have to find it, and that's what we've been talking about, is finding that Holy Spirit is changing the way you've been going, the way you've been thinking. But in order to know what's the righteous way to think is that you have to go the way. It's this left-right, you know, right foot, left foot that brings you on this journey where you're seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And we sh- we've explained how to do that. And what, what when the people got the baptism of Jesus Christ through the apostles, because of the statements and the laws already passed, the doctrines, the, uh, uh, the rules set up by the Pharisees, through their Sanhedrin, through their legislature. Sanhedrin wasn't originally a a legislature. We have an article on Sanhedrin. Because Christ appoints a Sanhedrin. We see him doing it. He appoints 70. That's the Sanhedrin. Sanhedrin was 70, 71, 72 guys. And he appointed them, just like Moses appointed them, to do something, but it wasn't legislate. And he sent them out. Now, why was that important? Well, at that particular time in history, if you go look through other documentation, the Sanhedrin, there had been a revolution, an insurrection in the Sanhedrin, where uh, large numbers of the people that were a part of the Sanhedrin at that time 
walked out under protest because of certain corruption that had come in. Now, that corruption had been a long time coming in. And we can go into details. And I talk about it in other places that, in our writings. That uh, the Sanhedrin, uh, or the high priests, lived in more opulent quarters than the king and in his entourage. that They had more wealth at their disposal. And why? how did that come about? Because that's not the way it was originally set up. Well, there was a couple of things that took place. One is we, they, they, under the Hasmoneans, they had made it possible that Levites could own property in their own name, their own personal name. And from the beginning of Moses, that was not the case. They owned all things common. And they were literally belonged to God themselves. If a Levite sold land, anybody, any other Levite could come and redeem that land back just by giving back the original price to the individual who, because he could only sell his interest in it and he didn't have total title to it. Now, a lot of people don't know that, and they don't know why that's significant, but that's extremely significant in the legal uh, strategy of Christ, the legal strategy of God. You understood why that was important. You probably don't. Do you need to? Well, if you need to, God will show you. I'm not going to show you. But those who start putting all the pieces of the puzzle together will understand that. I have people come to me all the time. Well, how do you own land today? Because they know they don't own the land. Because legal title does not include ownership. That's the definition. We have articles on that. Look up legal title at Preparing You. We, we quote the law. We quote their legal definitions. We explain why this has come about. And that came about long before FDR. It was uh, The process was already created. See, there's been many, many, many steps, many, many rabbit trails that have taken you away from the ways of Christ. And the churches are, are key to that deception because they're the church of Constantine and not the church of Christ. But Jesus says, you know, uh, in verse 6, we see that he says, My time is not yet come, but your time is always ready. The world cannot hate you, but me it hateth, because I testify of it, that the works thereof are evil. So, you need to go this other way. Jesus would not go to Judea. He was staying in Galilee at the time. And they wanted him to go up to Judea. They said it wasn't his time to go up to Judea. So, to me, this morning, when I was reading that, I was realizing, and this has been a, a prayer all week long and probably for years now, what is the timing of God? How do we know if we're following the timing of God or if it's our own ambition that is getting in the way of knowing what God wants us to do and when? And that is a challenge laid before all of us on an individual basis, which is why the Spirit is so important. Everybody who got the baptism of Jesus Christ was cast out because now was the time. And it was set up that they could do this. Because literally the Pharaoh said they could go. The, the powers that be said, if you get this baptism, you're out. 
You're separated. But of course now you have to provide all your social welfare outside of the social welfare of Judea, uh, of the Pharisees. Outside of the social welfare of Rome, because Rome was actually sending funds, and we showed this, that Augustus was sending funds to the Jews. Welfare to the Jews. Free bread to the Jews. They liked him. A lot of them did. But some would not sign up for that. It's rare to find people who are not signed up for that. And Jesus went looking for them. <laughs> and just as he went and looked for the blind man who was cast out. He was no longer blind. Because now that he saw, they cast him out. And that's what you have to do. is You have to learn to see with spiritual eyes that you've been going the wrong way and that the churches out there have been leading you down the wrong way and been saying that it's okay to covet your neighbor's goods and that it's okay to do this and that and the other thing. And it's not okay. It's not being a followers or doers of the word. So you have to turn around and go this other way, this other way of righteousness. And then your eyes will be open. And guys, like I say, way back in history, Polybius, etc., we're seeing this. Alexis Tocqueville was seeing this. He also, he did write, individual charity is powerful agency that must not be despised. He did write, any measure that establishes legal charity, which is what FDR was offering you, what LBJ was offering you, which has des- destroyed the black community and has been working on the white community has weakened the people, degenerated the people, as Polybius said, 150 years before Christ. Any measure that establishes legal charity on a permanent basis and gives it administrative form, thereby creates an idle and lazy class. Now that idle, that word idle is I-D-L-E. And lazy class living at the expense of the industrial and working class. And that's, of course, what's happened. And it has expanded that class and diminished the middle class. Good should be done without the hope of reward, as it is done by the deity himself. So that's another quote from you know, Democracy in America uh, by Alexis de Tocqueville. You know, he, he said a lot of things that are, you know, he was kind of the moralist of moralists. Uh, he, he talks about the American moralists do not claim that one must sacrifice oneself for one's fellow because it is a fine thing to do, but they are bold enough to say, that such sacrifices are as necessary to the man who makes them as to those gaining from them. He goes on to say, They do not therefore deny that every man can pursue his own self-interest, but that they turn themselves inside out to prove that it is in each other man's interest to be virtuous now yeah so you 
you seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness again, not so that you survive as a flesh and blood entity, but so that the life of God may be breathed into your very soul. Because without the spirit of righteousness dwelling in you, there is no survival of you or your soul. Yeah, you know, he he wrote uh, in 1840. Enlightened self-love continually leads them to help one another and incline them to devote freely a part of their time and wealthy to the welfare of the state, small estate, to the welfare of the individual is really what he's talking about, which. The individuals each contain a portion of the state. Because the state has no inherent, the capital S state has no inherent power until we create it. And when we create it, like they did with the Constitution of the United States, we can continually recreate it by our relationship with it. Whereas we were not, we the people in the beginning, according to the Supreme Court, we were not a party to it, so therefore we are not we the people. Even Madison argued it said that it needed to say we the people rather than we the state. Others argued that it should say we the states because it was an agreement between the states. It was never put to a popular vote. It wasn't a decision of the people. But he, he thought that we the people ought to be there because of the fact that the states were titular still because most of them were republics. Only a couple of them called themselves Commonwealth. And that was really a name only, in which we already did a show on that. You can go back and study that. I have seen Americans making great and sincere sacrifices for the key common good. And a hundred times I have noticed that when needs be, they almost always gave each other faithful support. As another statement by Tocqueville. So that's in line with the quote that was attributed to him, but not him. But like I said, all those people who were quoting it were quoting it because there is a ring of truth in it. And of course, there is a ring of Christ in it. It is, it is the essential part of the gospel. But the people who are going to your modern churches and not seeing this, are are blind. And their awakening will only come by the Spirit of God. It will I'm just I'm just poking people. I'm just saying, gee though, that's not it. <laughs> they grab a hold of it and they're clinging to it and I'm saying that's not it. And I show them why I say it's not it. And I show them what Christ said is it. But if they're going to see it or not see it, that is a spiritual choice of the soul. Tocqueville also went on to say, It is indeed difficult to imagine how men who have entirely renounced the habit of managing their own affairs could be successful in choosing those who ought to lead them. That's you guys. You used to take care of all the welfare of society through voluntary Groups, associations, charitable institutions, and churches. But you've decided, no, let's turn this over to 
Schumer. <laughs> Let's turn this over to Pelosi. Let's turn this over to Trump. Let's turn it over to, you know, uh, whoever. And in doing this for very long, why do you think you are going to develop the skills to choose who ought to lead when you know nothing about choice and leadership? It's like the person who hands a $20 bill out the window to somebody who's on the side of the street with a sign. And they think they were charitable. That's not charity. That's stupidity. That's nonsense. You're just doing it to get a good feeling. To pretend that you're helping somebody. You don't know that you're helping that person. You may be making them weak. The same as, you know, FDR and LBJ were destroying society in the same way that Sodom and Gomorrah destroyed society. In a time of affluence, they did not strengthen the poor, they weakened them. And that's that's so obvious. It went from 3% single-parent families to 70-some percent single-parent families in one century, in a couple generations. And you did it through systems of social welfare. So the systems of social welfare have to go, but you have no authority to stop them. You have an authority. You have a right. You have a guaranteed right, even in the Constitution, to practice pure religion. And we're showing you in the books, in the articles that we publish, how you can legally do that. I know that all this is going to do is put you down on the shores of the Red Sea with all the armies of the Pharaoh coming down on you with everything they got to destroy you because they will hate you if you actually started doing what Christ said. Because you make them look bad. And Tocqueville went on to say, it is impossible to believe that a liberal, energetic, and wise government can ever emerge from the ballots of a nation of servants. And that's what you become. You know, slavery, all these people that make such a big deal about early American slavery of, you know, blacks, uh, which all blacks weren't slaves, but there were, most of the slaves in America were blacks. Now everybody in America is a slave. Because you don't own your labor. I mean, when you were slaves in Egypt, we call it slaves in Egypt, 20% of your labor belonged to the government. And we call that slavery. We call that the bondage of Egypt. So how much of your labor belongs to the government today? So aren't you in the bondage of Egypt? How did you get there? You went to church? You sang songs? You read the Bible? And your ministers didn't tell you that by coveting your neighbor's goods, you would become merchandise? Peter told you that 2,000 years ago. Your, your ministers didn't tell you that it's a covetous practice to desire benefits at the expense of your neighbor through men who exercise authority one over the other, even though Christ told his ministers that we were not to be that way. Your ministers say it's okay to be that way. That you can actually save yourself by reciting magic chants or words or phrases 
or by thinking a thought. You have such power, but you don't. They have actually led you to become workers of iniquity and it is time to repent. And again, Alexis, I mean, there are a lot of things that he said. Society will develop a new kind of servitude which covers the surface of society with a network of complicated rules through which the most original minds and the most energetic characters cannot penetrate. This is back in 1840 he's saying this. It does not tyrannize, but it compresses, innervates, extinguishes, and stupefies a people. Which is what Polybius said 2,000 years before, is that it would degenerate you. He says stupefies the people, but Polybius said would degenerate you into perfect savages. Till each nation is reduced to nothing better than a flock of timid and industrious animals of which the government is the shepherd. He's talking about legal charity doing this. But they're not going to have you study Alexis de Tocqueville in your public schools. It's not in their interest that you understand what he's saying. You can go and study your Bible, and it's saying the same thing. It says that you will become merchandise, that you will love darkness, that you will covet your neighbor's goods, and through that covetousness, you will go back into the bondage of Egypt. You will become entangled in the elements of the world, the constitutional order and system of government. Entangled because of debt. Because you become a surety for the debt. And why? Because you love the wages of unrighteousness. You love the rewards that come from coveting your neighbor's goods to the agency of government that exercises authority. The greatness of America lies not in being more enlightened than any other nation, but rather in her ability to repair her faults. And that's where you're at now. But you don't do that by forcing everybody else. You do it by you repairing your faults, by repenting, thinking a different way, and we're showing you what that kind of looks like. Ultimately, it has to be the Holy Spirit writing upon your heart and your mind. When the past no longer illuminates the future, the Spirit walks in darkness. And that is because they, that's why they don't teach you the past, Alexis Tocqueville and what America was really doing. They've created and invented a whole new history, and they've been doing it for a long time. Our articles, schools as tools, show you that this is not a new thing. Critical race theory is not where it began. It's just where it would, it's just along the road. You get critical race theory out of your schools, you still have all the other nonsense that they've been teaching you for over half a century or more. You don't know the real history. Your your view of history has been altered by design. They planned it that way. That's in the congressional report. They uncovered this way back in the 50s. They wrote it in the congressional report. But you don't read that because you're slothful in the ways of righteousness. We went and read it, show you where it says it. We, we give you the testimony of men who explained it, who were actually the investigators 
for Congress to find out who was changing the way in which Americans view history. We show you how they altered manuals and school books. There's a lot of other people who show this as well. And we, but the critical thing isn't to go out and judge all the wrong paths. The ways of unrighteousness are broad. There's no end to what we can show you on that. It's the way of righteousness you have to find. And you will not find it until you start, like Tocqueville said, start sacrificing some of your time, some of your energy to sitting down in the tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands and start actually setting the table of the Lord where you start taking care of one another in righteousness. And you should be spreading this message at every opportunity you can. And they will hate you for it. But God will love you. Well, God loves you now. He just hates the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which is another whole subject that we could go into. And you can look that up at preparing you as well. But uh, we'll talk more about this and the contrast that comes from following the true ways of Christ and the ways of, and not following the ways of the world and the flesh and the devil. But we'll have to do that when we come back to the keys of the kingdom at another time. Till then, peace on your house and may God be with you. God bless. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net.